Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. The following program contains adult content, explicit language, and sexual themes. Listener discretion is advised. And it contains murder. Lots and lots of murder. You stinking bastard. People tell me, hey, you're going to go die and go to hell. I'm going to send that woman. Stand for 911. Where's your emergency? Oh, this is Sandy. The pretty one looks. Talk to me, look. One in the chest, one in the head. Fired by Detective Sergeant Roger Rogerson. I was uh, branching out. That's when the cannibalism started. Eating of the heart and uh, the arm muscle. Oh, I would have nailed Carl Williams' hands to a coffee table and just, and just pulled it out of his backside. Carl Williams is a wobbly bottom little Cherub face, cherub face little boy who would, who, 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 whose, whose life would be. I harm someone each time I kill someone to be an enormous amount of uh, Especially at first, an uh, enormous amount of, of uh, horror, guilt, remorse afterwards. But then that impulse to do it again to come back even stronger. Fitness fanatic Russell Cox loved yoga and jogging. He also dug guns and robbing banks. What he didn't love was spending time in prison. After a daring escape from the unescapable Katingle in 1977, Russell spent nearly 11 years on the run, robbing banks up and down the eastern seaboard with the love of his life, Nurse Helen Dean. Australian locksmith Paul Parsons was hoping for forever afters when he married his second wife Donna, a wrestler who went by the name The Welsh Dragon. Unfortunately for Paul, Donna got tired of their union and decided he was worth more to her dead than alive. Hi, I'm Barney Black. And I'm Tara Saraban. And this is Bloody Murder. We're a comedy true crime podcast focusing on some of the lesser known crime stories from Australia. And indeed around the globe. Now when we say comedy, it means there might be some jokes. And when we say explicit language, it means we say curse words like fuck for example. If you don't like the combination of true crime, jokes and swearing, then maybe this isn't the podcast for you. I mean, feel free to listen anyway, but don't go acting like you weren't warned. Now, before we commence our sordid tales, we'd like to remind you that this episode is brought to you by our wonderful and generous patrons. If you'd like to become a patron of Bloody Murder, go to our website for details. That's bloodymurderpodcast.com. As a patron, you have access to dozens of other episodes, including our macabre and undercooked early stuff. As well as exclusive uncensored patron-only monthly episodes where we really let fly. And levels above $5 receive free stickers and handmade Barney badges. And of course, you are automatically entered into our monthly giveaways. All right, Tara, let's get murdery. Depressed and in a funk after the failure of his first marriage, 34-year-old Victorian locksmith Paul Parsons took a trip to Wales to visit his sister in 1995, despite his deathly fear of flying. 
Once there, his sister came up with a novel way to lift his spirits and potentially get gentle and wounded Paul back on the dating scene. She placed an ad for a travelling companion in a local paper to take him on a tour of the UK. Oh, grinder. The ad was answered by Donna Marie Gammon, a 33-year-old wrestler and single mother. Born in 1962, Donna was the third of four children of a British Army officer. The family spent most of her early childhood in Germany, where he was posted, returning to the UK in 1971. Built like a brick shithouse made out of really big bricks, Donna had started wrestling when she was 20 and claims to have been the UK and European champion in the female heavyweight division. Now, I'm not sure if it's because she could bench press his entire body, but Paul fell for Donna and enjoyed spending time with her five-year-old daughter, Amy. He returned to Melbourne a couple of months later, rented out the house in Werribee that he'd built and went back to Wales to be with Donna. From there, things escalated very quickly. Like moving stairs. Like moving stairs. In late 1995, during his second trip to Wales, Donna found out that she was pregnant with Paul's baby. Paul was thrilled, as he'd always wanted to be a father. The couple moved back to Werribee in January 1996, got married on March 21st, and welcomed their new baby girl, Paige, on April 18th. Ah, born on Valentine's Day. Yeah, that's it. As often happens when relationships are moving stairs and escalate quickly, Paul and Donna found that they didn't actually have a lot in common. But Paul really wanted the marriage to work, so he tried hard to find common ground with Donna. She was obsessed with Tibetan Spaniels, also known as Tibbies. Are you familiar with that breed of dog, Barney? I am, Tara. They're cute and little and fluffy and little and have little curled tails. That is correct. Yeah. Donna bred and showed Tibetan Spaniels. She was so into them that she even had a personalised number plate which read Tibbies. Not titties? Well, she actually wanted titties, but that was taken. Well, that's mine, and I will never give it up. (laughs) No, you won't. It just screams Barney. Yep, titties for life. That's right. Paul's parents said he only became interested in spaniels, so he had something he and Donna could do together. Being a community-minded person, Paul joined the committee of the Melbourne Tibetan Spaniel Club. I bet they party all night. Oh, (laughs) and into the morning. Woo! Regular churchgoer Paul also loved playing cricket and was secretary of his cricket club and a church elder. He was very involved in the community. Sounds like a stand-up guy. He was a stand-up guy. After the birth of their daughter Paige, Donna got back in fighting shape and started wrestling again. She called herself the Welsh Dragon and won local heavyweight titles, which sounds a bit more impressive than it was as there was often only just one other woman in the division. And okay, yes, it was me. And no, I'm not good at wrestling. You're not? Mm-mm. The Australian Professional Wrestling Directory described Donna as a big, cranky mother, a hefty, thickly set gal, and a beefy woman who works a good match. Ah, oh, that's like the Roy Orbison song. Beefy woman walking down the street. <laughs> yeah, I love that song. Oh, yeah, it's very romantic. So, yeah, she was a very sturdy woman, much like myself. Yeah, she was a big and sturdy woman, much like myself, and it would most probably take an army to knock her off her feet. Especially since, unlike myself, she was actually good at wrestling. Mm. Paul also went to wrestling events with Donna, but apparently she didn't try to meet him halfway in the marriage. She didn't much like his friends, so he saw less of them, and she wasn't into church activities, so he eased up on those too. 
Donna started her own company called Melbourne Wrestling Promotions in 2000. She was to produce the company's first show on September 16th, as well as wrestle in it. Dustin off the Welsh Dragon. Isn't that the name of your fourth album, Barney? I think you're confusing that with cleaning off the albino worm. Ah, you can see why I would get the two confused. Yeah, it wasn't, didn't, wasn't popular. In late November 2000, according to Down for the Count by Jeff Wilkinson, Donna did an interview promoting the wrestling event in a local paper. She told the reporter that men had always been scared of her and also admitted to being violent to her husband. She said... Paul's been put on the floor twice. He was picking and picking, so I told him I was going to deck him. He'd had two previous warnings, so I decked him. I feel for her. There's nothing worse than a nagging husband. Yeah, you deck yourself sometimes, don't you? <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs> hey! <laughs> Jesus, Donna, use your words. But Donna did not plan on using her words. Quite the opposite, in fact. She'd grown tired of her marriage, and instead of being a regular person and seeking a divorce, she'd come up with a different plan entirely. Ooh. Mm-hmm. Welsh Dragon's getting greedy for some monies. <laughs> Fire! Paul had a life insurance policy that was worth nearly $900,000. With his superannuation added to it, it totaled over a million dollars, and Donna, the big cranky mother, wanted to get her sweaty mitts on it. That's a lot, that's a lot of money. What's that in bollers? Uh, like, there is no figure. It's like 800 bajillion, gazillion, trillion. Got interest you in buying some Barney shitcoin? No, you cannot. Donna worked the 11pm to 7am shift as a supermarket shelf stacker in a Safeway supermarket in Altona North. One of her co-workers was 23-year-old Bilal El Ahmed, who went by the name of Bill. He was born in Carlton, Victoria, to hard-working parents who were strict Muslims, though he chose not to embrace their religious beliefs. Bill wore a lot of black and had a massive caffeine addiction that saw him guzzle down Red Bull by the gallon and barely sleep at all for all the twitching. Although he had no criminal record or involvement with crime, Bill considered himself a vigilante hero just waiting for the right time to shine. Bill was obsessed with the 1994 movie The Crow, watching it dozens if not hundreds of times. The Crow is a very famous movie, partially due to the accidental death of star Brandon Lee during production. For those of you who aren't familiar with the movie or the comic book, it's about musician Eric Draven and his fiancée Shelley, who are attacked by members of an inner-city gang. Shelley is gang-raped and beaten to death, and Eric gets shot and thrown out a window. On the anniversary of their deaths, Eric rises from the grave, there's a crow nearby, and becomes a supernatural avenger called The Crow, who tracks down the badass punks responsible and mercilessly murders them. Bark! Bark! I never understood this movie. Like, I always wondered why Shelley didn't get to come back to avenge their deaths instead of Eric, as she suffered a lot more than he did. Hmm. I mean, you know, with the whole gang rape and bash to death thing. Doesn't sound fair. No, I mean, I know out of those two scenarios which one I would prefer. Bullet, window, all done. Thank you very much. But in researching this story, I found out that James O'Barr wrote the comic book it was based on to do something constructive with the years of anger and despair he felt after a drunk driver killed his fiance. So that was interesting. I've been hmm. mad at the movie The Crow for 25 years for no real reason. Knowing that Bill wanted to be a vigilante hero like the crow, Donna decided to take advantage of his obsession by telling him a manufactured tale of woe. 
Geez, those nights stacking shelves must have just flown by, huh? Mm. Despite her wrestling skills, the muscular, fit and agile Donna managed to convince Bill that her husband Paul was physically abusing her and her daughters. She also claimed that he was a pedophile who raped the little girls. This was exactly the type of situation wannabe vigilante Bill had been waiting for all his life. And the fact Donna said she'd pay him $20,000 to kill Paul sweetened the deal. Within a few weeks, he'd agreed to murder Paul to save Donna and her daughters from the entirely made-up abuse they actually weren't suffering from at all. Now, Barney, when hiring a hitman, there are a few things to consider, right? Like, what would you sort of, what would be the top of your list? Well, you know, work ethic, you know. Um, have, mm, they, ha- have they killed before? Have they gotten away with it? Yeah, yeah, those are You know, are they're not going to turn things. you in? Yep, um, also... Do they have a form of transportation? Oh, must have own car. I yeah, put that in the ad. Yeah. yeah, or someone to drive you. Well, Bill did not. <laughs> right. Well, yeah. In order for him to tail Paul and learn his movements, he had to ask around to find a friend who would drive him. Well, you can't just get an Uber. No, no, because they need to know where they're going. And if you're tailing someone, you, you don't know where they're going always. Yeah, and you can't just get a cab because, you know. He eventually convinced his friend Edward Turner to do it by telling him that they were trying to gain information on a pedophile so Donna could press charges against him. Donna even spoke to Edward herself to convince him that Paul was an evil rock spider. On July 28th, Donna bought a mobile phone in her name and gave it to Bill so she could reach him whenever she wanted to. Bill's first attempt at murdering Paul did not go according to plan. On August 22nd, he got Edward Turner to drive him to the Melbourne showgrounds. While Paul was inside at a dog club meeting, Bill cut through the brake hoses on the car Paul was driving. He expected Paul would drive off and meet his demise when he hit the brakes and they failed to work. Oh yeah, he'd fly off a cliff and there'd be a big explosion and... And yep. Yeah, then a crow would come along. Fuck, fuck. Fuck, fuck, you're a hero. Yeah. You're a hero, Bill. Yeah, That's fuck. what the crow would say. <laughs> However, all the brake fluid drained out and Paul could tell there was an issue as soon as he attempted to start driving. So he didn't even leave the parking lot. Right. Paul went back inside and told the secretary of the club what had happened and mentioned that only his wife knew he was driving this car rather than the motorcycle that he usually rode. He went back in and went, the cunt's fucked. Yeah, pretty much. He told her he was suspicious because he knew he was worth more dead to Donna than alive. So he wasn't sure if Donna was out to get him or if it was someone else from the wrestling community, but he was pretty sus about the whole thing. People don't accidentally cut your brake hoses. No. Not anymore. I mean, I used to. No, not, not, not anymore. <laughs> not, a, not by accident, no. No. Two nights later, the not-so-dynamic duo struck again. Paul was riding his motorbike home from work when Bill and Edward followed him. Donna had told Bill the licence plate number of the bike and what Paul was wearing to aid him in his heroic mission. Titties? Was that the name of the number plate? No, that's oh. her number plate. Titties! Oh. <laughs> Tibbies, Barney. Oh, Tibbies. Tibbies. Yeah, tut, t- tut. Titties, my number plate. Number, that's yours, yes. Bad yeah. language, no need for it. At 7.15pm, as Paul was getting close to his house, Edward drove alongside him and Bill put down his can of Monster Energy drink long enough to lean out the car window and shove Paul. He lost control of the motorbike, ran off the road and crashed. Thankfully, Paul managed to escape from this attack with only a bloody knee and he reported the incident to the police. Oh, look at my knee, officer. 
Yes. They kissed it better. Did they kiss his boo-boo? They did kiss his boo-boo and it was all good. After this clusterfuck, Edward rethought his life decisions and decided that Bill was on his own. Bill shopped around for another friend to drive Miss Daisy on his mission of faux vengeance. A mate of his, Andrew Stocker, answered the call. While making pyramids out of baked bean cans, Donna and Bill had come up with another plan to try to murder Paul, worthy of a Coen Brothers movie. Did it involve the beans? Yes. Did they spill the beans? While Paul was at work, Donna would pick up Bill and Andrew in her Holden ute with the personalised number plate Tibbies. They'd hide in the back while she drove them to her and Paul's place. She was going to let them into the house where they would wait for Paul and attack him when he came home from work. The plan was that after the murder, they'd walk away from the house to a nearby street and wait for one of their friends, Justin Strunk, to drive them away after their not-heroic mission of not-actual vengeance. When they were dropped off by Donna at the Parsons' property, they had to adjust the plan as a neighbour was working on the roof of his house and would be able to see them walk away from the crime scene. Instead, they arranged for Donna to pick them up after the murder and drive them to a nearby street where Justin would pick them up. Solid plan. Yeah, yeah. The more people you get involved in a murder scheme, the better it goes. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, like the more, the murderier. Mm. Mobile phone records showed that on September 15th, Donna and Bill had spoken on the phone nine times, including six between 5.30pm and 8pm. The records also revealed that in the 50 days prior to the attack, they'd talked on the phone another 215 times. I could never plan a murder for several reasons, but also it just seems to take way too many phone calls. I don't think I've talked to someone 215 times in the last 10 years. No, no, you wouldn't. At about 5.30pm on September 15th, 39-year-old Paul Parsons returned home from work. Once inside the house, he was knocked unconscious by a number of heavy blows to the back of his head with metal bars the men had taken from the garage. Then they got a knife from the kitchen and cut his throat. At 8pm, Donna came home with her two daughters, nine-year-old Amy and five-year-old Paige. Not wanting them to see Paul's dead body, she'd gone to a neighbour's house and asked them to come over as she said the door was open and she felt like something was wrong. Or wrong. Have you noticed a lot of people say wrong? Has it got two Gs? Wrong. I've been spelling it wrong all this time. Wrong. <laughs> wrong. The neighbour entered the Parsons' house and found Paul's dead body lying in a pool of blood. Two metal bars and a knife were found next to it with Paul's blood on them. There was no sign of forced entry by the killers. When the police arrived, Donna had prepared a platter of lies to serve them. She said that before her return to the house at 8pm, she'd last been there at 230 Donna told the police about the two earlier attempts someone had made to kill Paul and pointed the finger at a guy named Dominic Kerr, who was a fellow wrestling promoter who beefy Donna had a beefy beef with. That's a lot of beef. Mm-hmm. She also said that after 6.30pm, she'd received a phone call from an upset female friend and had gone to visit her. The police confronted Donna with evidence that she'd been seen by neighbours at the house between 2.30 and 8.30pm on the day of the murder. I mean, that Tibby's number plate. It's unmissable. Mm. Donna said, whoops-a-daisy, she'd forgotten that she'd returned to the house at around 6.30pm. But she just forgot. She said that she'd dropped off a wrestling banner in the garage and had not entered the house. 
When pressed by police to name the friend she said she'd visited that day, Donna admitted that she'd lied and said that she had in fact gone home to have it out with her husband, Paul, about the children and about him wanting to have sex with me all the time. Look, I think it's okay to ask for sex with your wife, but it's you've got to be all right with a no. <laughs> you can ask as, lo- as much as you want, but just be all right with a no sometimes. Or all the time. Or all the time. <laughs> <laughs> um, but again, she said she didn't go inside the house. Yeah. The police also discovered that Donna was the sole beneficiary of her husband's estate and would receive over a million dollars from his life insurance and superannuation. And, of course, like the phone records, she's just left a perfect trail of her connection to Bill and everybody else. On September 16th, the day after Paul's murder, Donna was supposed to take part in a wrestling match that she'd organised. And she actually intended to go through with it as well until friends talked her out of it and she kind of clued in how bad it would look to the cops if she was just so unmoved by her husband's murder that she just went off and did her little wrestling thing. Yeah, you really need to give yourself time to grieve. Mm, yeah, no yeah, wrestling no, while grieving. No wrestling for one week. <laughs> it's, it's the traditional wrestling grief right. period. Misguided murdering angel of vengeance Bill worked security at the wrestling the night after the murder. He was arrested and interviewed on September 18th. At his house, the police found a mobile phone and an electronic organiser which he'd taken from Paul to try to make the murder look like a robbery. A coat found in Bill's house was also stained with Paul's blood. It was his coat, Bill's coat. Wow, that's pretty damning. It's all so damning that there wasn't really much of a defence case. When arrested, Bill confessed his role in the murder and the part Donna had played and told them about the $20,000 that she'd promised him. But, and it's a big but, he claimed he didn't inflict any of the injuries that killed Paul and said a guy he knew named Drill, who was an experienced murderer, had done it. Yeah, Drill. You won't know Drill. He doesn't go to our school. He lives in Canada. Yeah, that's right. He, he works <laughs> in the shadows. He's a gun for hire. Yeah, like I know him because I'm a superhero and he's one too. Mm. Yeah, you wouldn't know him. Donna told detectives when interviewed after Paul's murder that she was not a victim of domestic violence. She said, he's never hit me, never laid a hand on me. She also didn't make any claims about him abusing the children. And, like, if there was any truth to it, that would have been the time. Phone records were incredibly important in proving this case. They identified Justin Strunk as having exchanged many phone conversations with Bill at about the time of the murder. The police arrested him on November 20th and he implicated Andrew Stocker in this shit show. Andrew was promptly arrested and interviewed. He denied any involvement in the murder. Wasn't me. No, Drill did it. Drill did it all by himself. On November 19th, 2001, Donna Parsons, Andrew Stocker and Bill L. Ahmed were arraigned and pleaded not guilty to the murder. The next day, though, Bill caved and pleaded guilty. He was sentenced to a term of 20 years in prison. After Bill had been sentenced, he still refused to give evidence against Donna or Edward, who maintained their innocence. Even faced with a contempt of court charge, he remained tight-lipped. WWCD. What would the crow do? Fuck! (laughs) You're a hero, Bill! On May 13th, 2002, Donna was found guilty, as was Andrew Stocker. She was sentenced to 23 years and he was sentenced to 21 years. Donna Marie Parsons was visibly shaken when the sentence was read out. Guess she thought she'd come up with a foolproof plan. 
No. According to Down for the Count by Jeff Wilkinson, Paul Parsons' brother Greg said in his eulogy that Paul would be remembered for his quiet dependability, his caring nature and his willingness to help. Outside the court, Paul's mother Patricia cried and told reporters, I just wish she hadn't done it. No sentence is long enough. No, it really isn't, is it? No, and she pretty much made the two little girls orphans. Yeah. What, where did, what happened to them? I read that a family member was looking after them. I'm not mm. entirely sure. I imagine they probably changed their names. Yeah. Just to get some distance from but, all of this. Yeah, to lose your mother and your father in one, yeah. one foul swoop and in, of a crow. Yeah. And in such a horrible sort of situation. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's the story of the Welsh dragon. Fuck. Fuck. Hey, Barney, what time is it? It's True Crime Nerd Time. True Crime Nerd Time is an opportunity for you, our listeners, to give us your recommendations for anything true crime related. It can be a book, movie, TV series, graphic novel, song, scotch egg. (laughs) A scotch egg? Are you still on about the scotch eggs? Yeah, it could be a crime related scotch egg. What, like a scotch egg that looks like Gary Ridgway, the Green River Killer? That's right. God damn it. It's an egg wrapped in sausage. And it and looks want, like Gary Ridgway. And it, yeah, it does. And Barney wants to eat it. And I want to eat it. Okay. Or, just, or just about anything that has scratched your true crime itch, Tara. Can't we just make the whole segment a review of Scotch eggs that look like serial killers? Yes. <laughs> okay, good. You, you can rec- record your voice. Just do it on your phone. We'll play it. Or write it. Or cook the Scotch egg. <laughs> and I'll eat it and read it out. And we have one here from Bridget Tomlinson, and she's from Middle Earth, otherwise known as New Zealand. Ah, Kiwi bro. Yeah. And she writes, Hey, Bloody Murder, here's my true crime nerd time. It's on Shot in the Heart by Mikhail Gilmore. Most of you true crime nuts would be familiar with Norman Mailer's true crime masterpiece novel, The Executioner's Song. It told the story of double murderer Gary Gilmore, the first killer to be executed in the US in nearly a decade. That was back in 1977. Shot in the Heart is written by Gary Gilmore's younger brother, Mikhail Gilmore. Mikhail is a celebrated journalist and writer with a great reputation. In a house filled with substance abuse, child abuse, cheating and crime, Mikhail's perspective offers in-depth insight into what made Gary grow into the violent murderer he became. While his brother Mikhail channeled his energy into getting out and saving himself, Gary continued on the troubled path set forth by their family. He perhaps even believed he was born inherently bad. This deeply personal memoir is a cracker of a read. I found it quite moving and hard to bear at times, but ultimately I couldn't put it down. Love your podcast, guys. Never change. Bridget. Thanks, Bridget. Yeah, thanks for that. Oh, there's um, actually a Bloody Murder book club now. Um, yeah. It's a splinter of the Facebook group. So if you're interested in... in well, kind of, it's not all true crime books. Some of them are sort of, you know. Fiction untr- crime. Fiction crime. Yeah. <laughs> Lie crime books. That's a group that exists if you're interested in joining a book club. And maybe you could read a book and then write it about, about write it. Write a true crime nerd time about and write it. Write a true crime nerd time about it. If you want to submit a true crime nerd time, rethink your life choices <laughs> and go to our website, bloodymurderpodcast.com for instructions. It's pretty easy, really. It has to be about 250 words. Just yeah. email it to us. Yeah, that's yeah. Pr- that's pretty much 
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Shit, really? All right, Barney, you big red fire engine. It's time for you to get murdery. Russell Cox went by many names in life. Nicknamed Mad Dog by the media and the Fox by his criminal peers, Russell was actually born Melville Peter Schnitchling. That's an awesome name. It is. Yeah. Born in Brisbane in 1949, his family nicknamed him Tim. But we're going to call him Russell. Russell grew up in the now gentrified but then rough as guts shit old working class suburb of Belmain in Sydney. 1950s Belmain life was hard. Men worked their asses off on the docks or did petty crime. But one thing the squareheads and the crims had both in common, they all drank hard and punched even harder. Russell had a pretty average childhood, but the bright little boy felt entitled to more. At just nine years old, Russell found himself in a bit of strife when he pinched a bike and had the cops on his heels. According to Mark Chopper-Reed, who spent time in Pentridge Prison with him, Russell had won a bike in a raffle. But little Russell was not present for the draw, and had therefore been denied this sweet ride. Angry and feeling ripped off, he had gone out and stole one. Three times. Oh. Now, I'm not sure if this story is correct. <laughs> but what I do know is that Ashfield Children's Court records show that Melville Peter Schnitzling was charged for stealing three bicycles. I guess payback is the best payback, Tara. According to young Schnitzling, it is. It is. After this, Russell pinched more stuff, got caught, pinched some more stuff, and got caught again. In and out of juvenile facilities, by the time he was 12, Russell was then committed to a juvie home until he was 18. That's a long sentence for juvie. It is. Russell was only free for a couple of months when he did a bit of GTA and got busted. Now, stealing a car is frowned upon in polite society, and with his crappy record, the authorities chucked Russell in adult prison. Here he made new friends and learnt some new skills. It is a form of university, isn't it? It really is. Villain university, I I think we've called it before. Upon release in the late 60s, Russell got work on the docks. It didn't last long. With the contacts he made inside and the new skills he learnt, Russell knew there was an easier way to make money rather than the back-breaking work on the ships. It was time to transform petty thief Melville Schnitchling into bank robber Russell Cox. Russell was a natural, Tara. With a cool head under pressure and an even cooler head for planning, Russell had finally found his calling in life. Russell went on a tear of burglaries and a spate of payroll robberies throughout Sydney's industrial southwestern suburbs. He also terrorised customers and staff during several bank robberies, earning him his nickname Mad Dog among police and the press due to him opening fire at police and bystanders when challenged. Why would they go with Mad Dog? That's so common. It's like when they call women who kill their husbands black widows. It's a bit cliche, isn't it? Yeah, they could have come up with better, like Russell Cox, the cunting fox. <laughs> that that I like. Mm. Now, robbing banks is not a victimless crime. Bystanders and staff suffer from dreadful trauma associated with the terror of the event for the rest of their lives. Some bank staff can never work in the industry again. So Russell, not cool. 
Russell's reign of terror was finally brought to an end in 1975 when he was charged with a payroll holdup at an electrical goods factory and sentenced to 14 years in Long Bay Jail. Russell Cox was a tough cunt, but incarceration <laughs> wasn't for him. Russell spent every waking moment scheming and plotting an escape. And the cunning fox had a plan. The cunting fox, Russell Cox, (laughs) had a plan. After smuggling in a Beretta pistol into the jail, Russell and two other inmates, Marco Mottrick and Alan McDougall, took a guard hostage and forced their way into the armory where they armed themselves with 38 revolvers. That's a lot of revolvers for three guys. 0.38 revolver. They hijacked a five-ton delivery truck. A guard hostage was then placed across the windscreen of the truck to convince prison sharpshooters not to take shots at them from the towers. Wow, that would be very scary for the guard to be like, you know, gaffer taped to the windshield or whatever. I think they use Velcro. I don't think prisoners have that much Velcro. Blue tack. Blue tack? Oh, hell no. Contraband. No, yeah. there, there are no posters on the walls of Long Bay Jail, Barney. Well, that's right. That could cover up holes in mm. the walls. Mm-hmm. That's right. Russell fanged the truck out of the Long Bay Jail gates onto Anzac Parade. As guards shot at the rear of the truck, the escapees returned fire. They didn't get far, Tara. As the truck sped off, it collided with a bread van. Croissants were strewn everywhere. <laughs> Before it could recover, prison guards shot out its tyres. Russell and his gang tried to make a run for it, using the prison guard hostage as a human shield but the guard pushed them away and in a hail of bullets russell and motrick as well as the prison guard were hit and badly wounded while Sagard was taken to hospital right away russell and motrick were left naked and bleeding on the floor of a cell for 26 hours oh yeah well there are some schools of thought that going to hospital when you're shot is a good idea and then others think that lying naked on a floor bleeding would heal your wounds quicker It was only when the prison population kicked up a stink and threatened a full-scale riot that medical staff were allowed to treat the failed escapees. For his role in the botched breakout, Russell Cox was charged with attempted murder and sentenced to life in prison. This landed him in the nasty Katingle. Now, Tara, we talked about Katingle last episode. Do you remember? I do indeed. Mechanical Hmm. dinner. Yeah, that's right. It was here that Russell met Ray Denning. Katingle was meant to be revolutionary, a prison within a prison deep inside Long Bay Jail. Wrapped in bacon. (laughs) Deep fried and served on a bed of rice. (laughs) Politicians were proud of it, the most high-tech, sophisticated prison in the world. But it was as cold as hell, Tara. This dank, sterile concrete box was built to house the worst of the worst. Hell's supposed to be hot, Barney. It had electronically locking doors, no natural light, and inmates would only be allowed one hour of exercise time for every 24 hours spent in Katingle. Well, that's one hour a day more than you do, isn't it, Sunshine? <laughs> it is. <laughs> no contact, 23 hours a day, and even your meals were delivered on a mechanised plate. Oh, yeah, electronic dinner. It sounds pretty sweet, doesn't it? No, it was not. No, no. I, we, I remember last episode we were like, that doesn't sound bad. But apparently everyone hated it, so it must have been pretty shit. Oh, it sent you mad. Soon after arriving at Katingle, the jail received a bunch of new inmates as a result of a failed escape attempt from Parramatta Prison. These inmates included Ray Denning. Together with Denning, Russell hatched a plan to escape. A hacksaw blade was smuggled into the prison in a belt and wrapped in carbon paper so as not to trip the metal detectors. It was then baked into a cake. (laughs) (laughs) 
In Katingle's exercise yard, there was a grill work to cover the ceiling, open to the elements. It was the only place prisoners could experience natural light. Russell would do chin-ups on them every day. When the guards weren't looking, he would do the chin-ups one-handed and do a couple of saw cuts every day. After months of this, he was eventually able to cut both ends of a bar. Oh, well, you've been cut off from two ends of a bar. I know that much. Only for being too lovely. Well, that's true. On November 4th, 1977, Russell asked a warden on duty if he could return to the exercise yard to retrieve his flip-flops. He wore flip-flops. Everyone else wore Crocs. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. that, that was part of the whole, like, um, torture the prisoners could tingle vibe. Yeah. They were actually, like, the first Crocs ever made were made for prison. Once there, Russell removed a table tennis paddle stuffed down his shorts. <laughs> oh, I thought he was just happy to see me. Well, you know what he did with that table tennis panel, paddle? Uh, I can imagine. Well, he wedged it into a crack into the exercise yard wall to form a step. He removed the bar he had previously cut and climbed onto the exercise yard roof. After climbing down, Russell still had to scale two four-metre-high fences topped with razor wire and also scamper up the outer walls of Long Bay. Oh, that's probably why he kept so fit and did yoga, just so he could do this kind of stuff, act like a spider. (sighs) He was spotted by guards shimmying over the second of these fences, but the officers within Katingle could not get out in time to catch him. And the electronic dinner machine, well, I mean, it couldn't really move in any other way except just that one way. Well, yeah, it was oblivious to all of this. It didn't care. All it wanted to do was give people food. Yeah, look, it was in there too, man. It was suffering. I could imagine this robot trying to give people dinner. Hey, look, man, I just ate. I don't need another dinner. You will have the dinner. (laughs) Eat your dinner. (laughs) Exterminate. Oh, Oh, get out. I would love to. Just leave. I want a beer. And just like that, Russell was in the wind. Russell made his way to Melbourne where he met a young nurse, Helen Eva Dean. Sparks flew as well as pants. It would become one of the most enduring criminal love stories. Even better than Carl and Roberta Williams. Yes, even better than that. Really? Would he go to the milk bar and buy her like Milkos and, and Twixes just like she likes? Yes. Did he write her some poetry? Sure. (laughs) I'm still not convinced, Barney, because Carl and Roberta, that was, well, that was like a Casablanca for our time. Yeah, but she also divorced him while he was in jail. Yeah, sucks to be him. So it's not an enduring love story. It actually ended. (laughs) Well, I don't know what I can say. I mean, I just wish the Roberta show was going to be aired at some point, but it won't be. Helen was related to Ray Chuck Bennett one of the great bookie robbers and a very serious Melbourne crim. Oh, yeah, he wasn't trifling. No. We covered him back in episode 59, the Kane brothers. Remember that one? I do. But Helen Dean was not of that world. She was middle class and very straight. The word is Helen did not know who Russell was or that he was a wanted man. The gossip is he eventually told her, Tara. I would have loved to have heard that conversation. Uh, Honey, uh, we... Really need to, to have a talk. I made lasagna. <laughs> Come down and have a chat with me. Oh, God, he's going to try and break up with me. I can just tell. Oh, no, he's just a convicted bank robber who's run away from prison. Oh, well, that's okay. Oh, actually, that's kind of worse. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it depends. How he made lasagna, all right. He's a keeper. Through his underworld connections, Russell got himself a false passport and jetted off to the UK. The couple stayed in England until 1980. 
The Lovebirds then travelled to Germany where they kicked back for a while before returning to Australia in 1982. Kadafalov. Kadafalov. Yeah, they said that a lot. (laughs) Setting up house in country Victoria where Russell worked for cash as a labourer. His escape from Katingle made headlines. Both Russell's and Helen's pictures made front pages of newspapers across Australia. Sightings were reported everywhere from Darwin to Perth. The police chased down these leads, but Russell was always one step ahead of the cops. Besides the labouring, rabble-rousing Russell went on the dole for a spell. (laughs) When he's on the run from the cops, he was collecting unemployment benefits. Yes, I think it's pretty ironic that Australia's most wanted man received unemployment benefits whilst on the lamb. That's amazing. He would have able to, like, reason why you can't get a job. Oh, it's just reasons. I guess government departments in those days didn't really share information. Possibly not. A huge armoured truck hauled up in Brisbane in 1982 put his face on the front pages again. Not long after, police received a tip that Russell and Helen were living on a farm in New South Wales. Russell was sighted during surveillance, but when police moved in, slippery Russell had vanished again. He's like Bigfoot or the Yeti or something. Yeah. Yeah, you can't, get a, you can't actually take a clear photo of him. No. Nah. nah, he's always in motion. One of the cops that went in to scoop him up was now disgraced armed robbery detective Roger Rogerson. Uh-huh. In an interview on an episode of the TV show Tough Nuts, he described the scene. The closest we got to getting him was up near Mwollumbar. We had information he was on a farm there. I took a team of guys up there, including some really smart surveillance guys, and we were quite satisfied that he was at that particular property. Which was further helped by the fact that a former member of the Victorian police who ran a business in the area had delivered items to this house and he confirmed that he had sighted Russell Cox sitting on a tractor at this particular property. Maybe it was just a Russell Cox scarecrow. <laughs> Maybe people like in, all over Australia had them and that's why all the sightings. Oh, yeah. We liaised with the local police over that night and the next morning. Now, whether someone amongst those other police officers said something stupidly and someone picked it up in town, but by the time he got out to that farm the next day, he was no longer there. After this close call, newspapers across Australia published his photo on their front pages. Again? But the old mugshots really looked nothing like the way Russell looked whilst on the run. Russell Cox constantly changed his appearance. The phrase master of disguise was just used by journalists to death. Uh. Some reporters wrote that he had studied theatrical makeup, had a trunk load of wigs, false beards and moustaches, glasses, etc. He also had the ability to gain or lose weight at the drop of a hat. I only have the ability to do one of those things. Drop a hat. No, I'm very good at holding a hat. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're not. How do you know? It's not been tested. In 1983, Russell and Helen were holed up with a criminal pal, another former great bookie robber, Ian Carroll, at his rented house in the beachside suburb of Mount Martha in the south of Melbourne. Oh, so it was like a bit of a super group, like the Travelling Wilburys or something. Like Creedleback. Yeah. That's Nickelback and Creed. Yeah, and they get together and perform and they don't. It's not a real thing. They sh- it should be. No, but it's more actually like, you know, Simon and Garfunkel and Hall and Oates. It's like... It's like Hall and Garfunkel and Simon and Oates. <laughs> Garfunkel and Oates. Yeah, Garfunkel and Oates. That's where the talent's at. Yeah, yeah. I love that band. Oh, yeah. I also love Creedleback. Yeah, well, shh. Please, make it real. Make Creedleback real. <laughs> Creedleback, if you're listening, please be real. So this supergroup were planning a big score together. But 
Tara, mm-hmm. these two notorious career criminals had a bit of a disagreement over which masks they should wear. Russell wanted to go old school and wear ski masks, mm. whereas Ian wanted to go fancy and don gorilla masks. Oh, I can kind of see both the sides of the argument. I'd go gorilla. It is the 80s. Yeah, I mean, come on. Move forward. Actually, Tara, I'm not sure what they argued about, <laughs> but bad words were said. Oh, well, bad words should never be said. Words they couldn't take back. Pushes turned to shoves and it was on. Mm. A few slaps led to a few punches and then the guns came out. <laughs> Shots were fired by both men. Russell copped a bullet in his thigh and Ian Carroll caught two in the chest and died. Oh, wow. Being a trained nurse, Helen Dean removed the bullet from Russell's leg, sewed him up, bundled him in the car and they took off, leaving all their belongings behind. She's handy to have around, huh? Probably better than just lying on the cement floor naked. <laughs> Don't you think? Later that day, the cops kicked in the door of the Mount Martha house and discovered one of the biggest illegal gun hauls ever to be found in Victoria. As well as the body of Ian Carroll, they found handguns, shotguns, assault rifles, submachine guns, rocket launchers, hand grenades, personal thermonuclear devices, ski masks, baller suits, gorilla masks, <laughs> security guard uniforms, lists of police radio frequencies, police scanners, disguises, wig-making materials, theatrical makeup, safes, presumably to practice on, mm-hmm. and a bread maker still in its box. Now, bread makers seem like a good idea at the time, but nobody really uses them. No, they don't. I do mean, they? you know, you can buy a loaf of bread for a dollar. Why mm. spend three hours making a loaf of bread? Yeah, well, I don't know. Now, did I mention that Russell Cox used to run 15 kilometres every morning? Mm, I don't know. I wasn't listening. He would do it at dawn, as that's when police would raid houses looking for escape criminals. So that's very smart. Yeah, he sounds like a pretty clever cat. Well, the day after the shootout with Ian Carroll, Russell ran 15 kilometres over dry sand. Ow. He would have had a sore leg, thigh too. I don't know. Maybe he's super fit. He's used to climbing prison walls and stuff. Yeah. Mark Chopper Reed had this to say about Russell Cox. Uncle Chop Chop. Russell Cox was the only peace-free, yoga-loving, peace-free, fucking hippie, gunman, bank robber, alleged killer I've ever met. You know, the only thing he has out of place is a touch of curry and chilli pepper in the vegetables. He doesn't smoke. He doesn't drink. He was into all this touchy-feely, you know, save the world crap. He was a fucking wombat, but he liked robberies and carrying guns. Mm. Truer words were never spoken. Thanks, Chop Chop. In 1988, Russell hooked up with his old (laughs) mate and fellow armed robber, Ray Denning. Ray had recently absconded from a low-security wing at Goulburn Prison. Cops had been looking for Russell for nearly 11 years. It only took Ray a few days. Mm. They had a huge payroll robbery in their sights, but alas, Tara, it wasn't to be. Both knuckleheads were arrested in a shootout with police in the car park of Doncaster Shopping Town just outside Melbourne. Guards had spotted them following their armoured van through the city and they rang the cops. Ray Denning was identified and the police came in hard, shooting and ramming the car. Ray, who was driving, was thrown from his seat and went head first onto the road. Russell was hauled out of the car and after a few fisticuffs was arrested. Inside the now mangled Ford, the cops found their robbery kit. Guns, masks, and a bread maker still in its (laughs) box. The police were stoked that they not only captured Ray, but as a bonus, they accidentally got Russell Cox in an awesome two-for-one deal. Australia's two most wanted men were now back in custody. At first, the police had no idea they had captured Australia's most wanted man. As Russell was dragged off, a dozen guns pointed at him, he told cops... You blokes won't believe who you've caught today. The police were thrilled. 
They took Russell back to the cop shop and had photos taken with him, with their arms around him. <laughs> I bet he was really thrilled by that. Oh, yeah. The photo's great. We'll put it up on our Facebook group. Is he like but, Grumpy uh, Cat? Yeah, he's, gr- <laughs> he's, he's Grumpy Cat and there's like uh, eight cops around him all grinning like dickheads. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, for them it would have been quite a moment because oh, yeah. it's been like, how long was he out? Oh, I'm sure you'll say. Russell Cox had been on the run for 10 years, 8 months and 19 days. That is a long time. Wily little fox, that one. Now, if you had been listening last week, you would know that Ray Denning turned Supergrass Dog Informant and turned in a bunch of bad guys, including his BFF, Russell Cox, who demanded his friendship bracelet back. Well, yeah, he wouldn't want him keeping it after that. No. But in the end, not a lot of Ray's information could be corroborated, meaning Russell Cox was never charged for the Barclay Square robbery, which resulted in the murder of a security guard, which I talked about last week. There have been claims that Ray Denning's escape from Goulburn Prison had been orchestrated by the police in the hope that Ray would lead them to Russell. A police spokesman said, Yeah, nah, it's just a fluke. Pulled that one out of our asses." <laughs> Oh, wow. That's that's, real, that, that sounds like a real quote. That's a real quote. Oh, yes. Sure, why not? I'm sure. Russell Cox was charged with a bunch of armed robberies, but he was acquitted on the murder of Ian Carroll after a Melbourne judge ruled that it was not clear who shot first. Well, I guess, you know, it's been a while. His lover, Helen Dean, went to prison for six months after being caught outside the courtroom with a pen gun in her bum bag, or fanny pack as the Americans call it. Yeah, but she didn't actually go to prison because she had the pen gun. It was because she was wearing a bum bag. Oh, they're atrocious, aren't Mm. they? Russell served time in Victoria, then Queensland, and finally in New South Wales. All in all, Russell served 16 more years in prison. That's a lot less than a life sentence, which is what one of the sentences he ran away from. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. Behind bars, Russell Cox got woke and became a model prisoner, mentoring young offenders all about the evils of wearing a bum bag (laughs) and of leading a life of crime, of course. Well, yeah, that too. Yeah. It's also bad. Not cool, dude. Don't do it. Mm. Russell and the love of his life, Helen Dean, married during his long stretch in prison. Russell Cox was eventually paroled in December of 2004. The parole board, in a statement to the media, said... There is powerful evidence that he is intent on leading a normal and lawful community life, and he has promised never to wear another bum bag. Also, he gave us this brand new bread maker, still in the box, and we're pretty excited about it. Well, yeah, you can make your own bread, yeah, man. It's really cool. It smells really good. I oh, whole man. house smell oh, like bread. Oh, yeah. Russell Cox never got charged for escaping from Katingle, for the authorities had lost his prison file when Katingle was shut down. <laughs> Yes, so that, yeah, after the prison reform movement, led by his old mate Ray Dennings, informed the public of its brutal conditions. Helen Dean, his long suffering lover who stood by her man through years of escapes, bloodshed, crime, and being on the run, was waiting for Russell Mad Fox Cox when the doors finally swung open for him. And as far as I can tell, Tara, they remain together to this day. Ah. I have a postscript here, actually. Is it a poem? Yeah. Did you write a poem about this? Can you please read it? It's about your thoughts and feelings on the case. Yeah. Yeah, awesome. Oh, my fart box. <laughs> no, no, I don't like this poem. <laughs> Not my scene, You don't mate. want me to finish it? No. It gets, it, it gets worse. <laughs> <laughs> I don't doubt it. Now, here's the postscript. Andrew Rule wrote in the Herald Sun newspaper on January 4th, 2013, about a notice published in the same papers in memoriam notices. That notice is in memory of Ian Carroll, who died 30 years ago. 
and sends best wishes to Raylene and family. This apparently harmless notice also names Russell Cox and his wife Helen Dean, then states, You will both be remembered. We will definitely meet again. It is signed Mick Gatto, a colourful Carlton underworld identity. Andrew Rule writes, They can assume it is an implied threat. Mm. Ooh. He also describes Russell Cox as Australia's Dillinger with a dash of Bonnie and Clyde. He goes on to say that Russell Cox was a main suspect in the shooting of famous Melbourne standover man Brian Kane, who was shot dead in the Quarry Hotel in Brunswick in 1982. Just around the corner. It is. A former Victorian crime figure told a reporter the day that Russell was released, it may have happened a long time ago, but memories are long in Victoria and they will kill him. Well, I'm going to call bullshit on that. Tara, because, you know, he was in jail for 16 years and they had plenty of opportunity. I yeah. think he's pretty safe. Apparently he's living in Queensland and he lives a pretty quiet life. He, did, he didn't write any books or go on any, on any panel shows or anything like yeah, I mean, a lot of these notorious crims. People wouldn't even know who he was. That's right. Yeah. And I wish him luck. If he's listening to this. <laughs> oh, Russell Cox, the cunting fox, loves bloody murder. If you are listening, Russell. And Helen, I wish you the best. And, uh, you know, you've turned your life around, you mentored young offenders and, and you served your time. I hope it's working out for you, Russell. And maybe one day you will take that bread maker out of its box. And... <laughs> hey, I've got a question for you, Tara. Yes, Barney? What is Aussie As? Aussie As are short stories of criminal stupidity and bloody legends with a quintessentially Australian flavour. Why do you want to know? I would like to hear one, please. Oh, okay, sure. Well, I just, here's one I prepared earlier. Well, obviously, you're not just making this shit up, are you, as you go along? I sometimes, eh, no. So today I'm going to be talking about Jason Donovan. Ooh. Yeah. Jason Donovan became famous by playing Scott Robinson on Aussie soap opera Neighbours. He followed in ex-girlfriend Kylie Minogue's footsteps by leaving the show and releasing some pop music produced by Stock Aitken Waterman, who essentially had one song and just did it over and over again. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, like, they had a duet too, him and Kylie. They especially did. for you. Should mm. we sing it together? I'll do the Jason No. Bit. It's a terrible <laughs> song. So Jason then starred in Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat on stage in the UK. No doubt he did several pantos before spiralling into cocaine addiction and self-loathing. In January 1995, he OD'd at Kate Moss's 21st birthday party at the Viper Room in LA, just two years after River Phoenix had died outside there. Of that night, he wrote in his autobiography that he really wanted to be cool and rock and roll and, like, make all these new fun Johnny Depp-like friends, but he failed miserably. He wrote, Who was I trying to fool? There was nothing rock and roll about me. I was a little kid from Melbourne, the boy from Neighbours. Jason Donovan with his cheesy hits and his teen fans. Joseph with his fucking Technicolor dream coat. He forgot to mention that uh, spiky mullet, oh, blonde it was, mullet. It was a glorious mullet. Oh, it was breathtaking. Jason Donovan has been written off a lot in his life, and yet instead of it turning him into a dark, villainous creature out to destroy the world, lurking in the shadows, wanting to inflict pain on us all, it's actually made him into a bloody legend. Jason has become a hero in his London neighbourhood after racing to help extinguish a fire at a neighbour's property wearing only his underpants because that's what heroes do. They fight crime in their underwear. True. 
The Sun newspaper reports that a couple were sleeping in their house when it caught fire last month and they praised 51-year-old Jason for his pantless action. The woman said, We had a fire and we were woken up by our neighbours banging on the door. Then I was standing outside with my kids and Jason Donovan came running barefoot across the street. Then he came and he hosed down the fire with fire extinguishers and he called the fire department for us. He gave me a big hug, made sure I was okay and then he left. He's a very nice man. So he keeps fire extinguishers and a phone down his underpants. Damn straight he fucking does. Um, Her partner said, fantastic, best neighbour in the history of the world. It's brilliant. Jason told the Sun newspaper, thank God everyone is safe. I praise the emergency services who turned up quickly and I just acted as anyone else would have acted at the time. So humble. Yeah. You know, it's not the first time that Jason has come to the rescue of people in need. While out jogging earlier this year, he stopped to help a woman who'd fallen on the footpath. He called an ambulance and was seen taking instructions over the phone from an operator. When the paramedics arrived, our neighbourhood hero stayed with the woman, holding her hand as she was examined. A witness told The Sun, Jason Donovan stayed with her while they treated her on the pavement, but the other bystanders left. Jason then shook the injured woman's hand and gave her a big and encouraging smile as paramedics escorted her into the ambulance. Being the humble motherfucker that he is, he told the son, Oh, I'm no hero. I did what any responsible citizen would have done. So humble. Humble motherfucker with a big ass dick. Humble motherfucker with a big ass dick. So basically what I'm taking from this is that Jason Donovan is the hero we all need right now. And if you're in a crisis and you whisper his name three times, if you're lucky enough, he just might appear and save you. Jason Donovan. Jason Donovan. Jason Donovan. <laughs> is he here? Is he here? No. Oh, we're not in a crisis. No. Uh, do you want to, should I push you over and we'll see what happens? <laughs> Jason Donovan. No, we tried that last week and it, that no, didn't work oh, out. Oh, I laughed. <laughs> so yeah, I just thought I wanted to give some love to Jason Donovan because. Good, good on you. Yeah, he's fucking awesome and he's copped so much shit in his time. By the way, as an adult, his acting's pretty solid. Oh, yeah. Ah, yeah, he's been doing some, like, theatre in London and stuff. Yeah, he pops up in TV shows and Australian movies sometimes. I haven't noticed. I think he's pretty solid. Yeah, well, you know, his his main job is saving people who are in trouble. Well, yeah. Yeah, that's that's his true passion. Thanks for listening, and thank you so much to our patrons. If you would like to support us, visit our website, or if you just want to buy us a drink, there's a PayPal donate button there too. And who'll be buying the drinks this week, Barney? Well, we've got Lisa D. Felice and Lorraine Ledwell. Oh, Lorraine, she's the admin for our Facebook group. What a champion. Thanks, guys. Thank you. I've been Barney Black. And I've been Tara Saraban. And this is Bloody Murder. Please don't forget to review us on iTunes. And, of course, rate and subscribe. It really helps us. Particularly the subscribing. Follow us on our Facebook page or join our group. On Twitter, we're at Bloody Murder Pod. And on Instagram, we're Bloody underscore Murder underscore Podcast. Now, if you didn't get any of that down, because you should have been writing it down. You should be writing everything that we say down, for God's sake. There will be a test later. Yeah. But if you didn't write it down, check out our website, Bloody Murder Pod. Podcast.com for all of that information. Mm -hmm. Also, news, galleries, more episodes, and merchandise. So, thank you for listening, and we'll be back soon. Oh, and our next episode's going to be a special with Cambo, True Crime Island Bloody Murder Mashup. I'm excited. Goodbye and adios. And keep kicking against the pricks. Hey, Tara. Yes, Fartbox. (laughs) 
I was making this hot dog the other day. Now it wasn't just a normal hot dog. Mm. I had all I had this really nice Kransky sausage. Mm-hmm. I had sauerkraut. I had mustard. I had grated cheese. I cooked the onions, and I had this one bun that was a really nice Vietnamese roll. Oh, from that shop up the street. That yeah, does a good one. yeah, oh, Barclay sweet. Square. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I put it all together. I cracked open a can of uh, lemonade, mm-hmm. and I was just about to sit down. To Were watch. you excited? I was. I was going to watch a, an episode of Law and Order, and I was going to eat this hot dog. Yeah. Anyway, I put the episode on, and I knock over my my can of lemonade with the remote, and it spills all over my hot dog. Oh no! Did it get it completely soaked and soggy? It was just soft? all soaked and soggy, and oh, it was just dripping no. wet. What did you eat instead? Oh, I just ate it. <laughs> was it dripping lemonade all over you? Well, I ate it over the plate. <laughs> but it was. Did you bring it out first? No, <laughs> not really. <laughs> was it a flavour sensation? <laughs> no, no, it wasn't great. I mean, the inside of the hot dog was still good. It was all fine, but it was just, it was soaked. The roll I, was soaked. And I didn't have any other buns, and so oh, I ate it anyway. That's such, a, that's such a sad and yet hilarious story. I'd like to think that now you're like, that's the only way you're going to eat hot dogs. No. With lemonade all over them. No, I'm not going to do that. No? No. I, no? Okay, well. I recommend it. You're a bit of a buffoon, aren't you, with your monkey hands? Sometimes. <laughs> I mean, everyone gets a bit unco sometimes. I like that you ate it anyway. That shows true commitment to the hot dog. Well, yeah, the hot dog is the most important thing. Mm, you it's know. the most important I, dog of the day. No, it isn't. You've got to respect the dog. I respect the dog. I love dogs. Yeah. I'm going to get a little bow tie for my cat, and he's going to look like fucking James Bond. Yeah. Because he's black and white, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, he's got the white chest, and he's all black all over. And if I put that bow tie on him, going to be amazing. He's going to look badass. Fucking badass. Yeah, I'm talking Roger Moore, James Bond. Yeah, you know? the good one. The good one. <laughs> Fight me. Yeah. <laughs> Come at me, Sean Connery fans. He's a dickhead who likes to beat women. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, they keep making jokes, but they're the only ones laughing. There's no one else here, fuckheads. <laughs> <laughs> How did we get it? Like, have ghost laughs? You know, Brandon Lee is the uh, son of Christopher Lee, who played General Grievous in Star Wars <laughs> Episode Six. He's also the brother of um, Tommy Lee from um, that shit band. Oh uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Which makes him Pamela Anderson's ex-brother-in-law. Yeah, yeah. And there's that '60s pop singer Brenda Lee. I believe he's related. to Yeah, as well. he was related to her as well. Lee Majors, uh, I believe he played the Six Million Dollar Man or something. Oh, yeah, he's, yeah, he's they're, they're, in there somewhere. He's in the Lee family. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know Mike Lee, who does all those films? Yeah, like Naked. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's actually, um, he is his dad. Yeah. That's why he makes all those sad films, because he was really sad about his son getting shot. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah he had three dads. Yeah, he had a lot of dads. He had a lot of dads. Yeah, all, not all. a lot of mums. Not a lot of mums. Uh, Sarah Lee. Yeah, the cake the, making lady. Yeah, the cheesecake people. Mm, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, definitely. That was um, that was his aunt. Right. Yeah. Cool. Research. <laughs> it's called research, people. We do it. Yeah, I never mentioned that he was Bruce Lee's son. I figured just everyone would know that. Yeah. Now he's related to a cheesecake. <laughs> <laughs> Someone said a swear. I can't listen to these stories of horror, rape and murder when someone says a swear. No. No. That may be, like, I mean, that's bad. 
Yeah. I don't want to hear something bad when I'm listening to, want... to tales of gang rape and murder and horror. Well, that's right. I don't want to listen to a joke when you're telling me a story of murder for my entertainment. <laughs> and I don't want to listen to you do that because when I listen to a serious podcast, I'm helping the communities somehow. Yeah, I'm so, I'm, I'm helping keep I'm crime helping... down by listening to yeah, crime for I'm entertainment. I'm all of the victims by listening to serious true crime podcasts. At his house, the police found a mobile phone and an electronic organiser which he'd taken from Paul to try to make the murdery look like a robbery. The murdery. The murdery? Yep, he tried to make the murdery look like a robbery. What a scamp. <laughs> he tried to make the robbery look like a murdery. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad I noticed I said that because you fucking didn't. Shot in the Heart tells a real first-hand account of how the Gilmore boys grew up in a profoundly dysfunctional family, much like the Gilmore girls. <laughs> oh, you're going to... Gilmore girls fans, they don't play. They will come for you yeah, with gonna, Yeah, Gilmore girl fans, come at me. Yeah, oh, they're going to come at you hard. In the Gilmore girls' house, <laughs> filled with substance abuse, bad jokes and... Melissa McCarthy. And menstrual cramps. Anything you can do, they can do bleeding, motherfucker. Yeah, I don't doubt it. <laughs> For a second. I know I'm shit. I know, I know men are. Oh, not, not all Barneys, just not, this one. Just this Barney. Not all Barneys are shit, just this one. That's right. Thanks. <laughs> Helen was related to to somebody. Yeah, you? No. Uh, 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 Bruce Lee. She was related to Bruce Lee Makes sense Helen was the daughter of Bruce Lee (laughs) The word is Helen did not know who Russell was Or that he was a wanted man The gossip is he eventually told her Tara I would have loved to have heard that conversation Uh, Honey, uh, we really need to to have a talk I made lasagna (laughs) <laughs> Come down and have a chat with me. Oh, God, he's going to try and break up with me. I can just tell. Oh, no, he's just a convicted bank robber who's run away from prison. Oh, well, that's okay. Oh, actually, that's kind of worse. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it depends. How he made lasagna, all right. He's a keeper. Yeah, yeah. But he put too much spinach in it. Oh, Garfield would not be impressed. No. No, he doesn't want to play Spider-Man anymore. <laughs> I don't think anything we're saying at this point makes any sense. I never knew that that cartoon cat, his first name was Andrew. Yeah, yeah, Andrew Garfield. And he played Spider-Man. Yeah, he did. Um, He lost some weight for the role. The unnecessary Spider-Man, I might add. Uh, Hang on, no, that's Tom Holland, isn't he? No, no, Tom Holland's a good Spider-Man. I think think Garfield wasn't great. Oh, okay, I just don't care. (laughs) Well, let's talk about it more then. Well, you can, but it'll be a monologue um, because I just really don't care about comic book movies. Come at me, fuckers. Like, I just, I mean, people, go ahead and like them if you want. I just personally don't care. I like that a lot of people don't like the Joker and they walk out of the cinema because it's too violent. I like that. (laughs) Have they not read a review? Yeah, I don't know. Oh, God. You know what it is? They probably thought they were going in for some, like, oh, lovely movie. Oh, well, I hear Dame Judy Dench might be in it. Oh, let's take Grandmama. Well, yeah, she could play anything, man. She could. She probably is playing the Joker. <laughs> no, I think it's um that Maggie Smith from uh, Downton Abbey. <laughs> She's very versatile. Well, I told Dexter that because, uh, you know, Tom Holland's not playing Spider-Man anymore. And oh, he said, cool. who's going to play him now? And I said, well, actually, they've got a 60-year-old Filipino woman that's going to do it. And he went. Really? 
I went, I th- no, Dexter. And then he started laughing. He got it. He got the joke. I would eventually. actually be more interested in watching it if it was a 60-year-old Filipino woman. Well, I hear that's who's going to be the next James Bond too. That's excellent. I look forward to it. They're going to do the movies together. It's uh, Spider-Man, James Bond. Oh, and they're Bond. twins. Well, 60-year-old Filipino lady twins. Yeah. Ah, I think I'm starting to get interested in the comic book universe. I know. I hope they're real twins, not CGI'd. Do you remember that Willy Wonka? Uh, remember that Willy Wonka thing? Oh, we were promised uh, Oompa Loompas, and all I did was bloody control C and control V. That one guy. That sucked so hard. I want individual Oompa Loompas in my chocolate factory. Thank you very much. I I'm going to get some Cambo Rage on. Yeah, I know. Just one. I mean, he was a great Oompa Loompa. Yeah, but I'll give him that. But I, come I on, need more than one. Yeah. No. I don't think that's too much to ask. No, I mean, like maybe if it was being John Malkovich, like that kind of thing where it, where it was a scene and it happened once, like when he went inside his head, I would be fine with that. But the whole movie, no. Oh, by the way, John Malkovich would have made a better Willy Wonka. Oh, God, yeah. John Malkovich is brilliant. Yeah, Johnny yeah. Depp, well, he can suck my dick. Yeah, he can eat a big bowl of big, cold dicks. Yeah, a big bowl of barely defrosted dicks yeah. for Mr. Depp yeah, coming fi- right up. Hey, you're not leaving the table until you finish it, Johnny. Mm, eat all those okay, dicks, Johnny. Okay, eat all those dicks, Yeah, your wife-beating fucking wino. Oh, <laughs> was that too much? I don't think it was enough. Fuck up, dickweed. Yeah, fuck off, Johnny Depp. I'm sick of your shit. I'm so tired of Johnny Depp's shit. Can we put Johnny Depp? Beatings in the outtakes? I don't know. Will they, all the Johnny Depp fans come at us? Oh, you know what I hate is if people post some kind of like faux inspirational quote that Johnny Depp's supposed to have written, like, fuck off. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if they'll come out. I don't fucking, I don't know anymore. Let's just yeah. do whatever the fuck we want. He, could, he, deal with he it. couldn't even write a shopping list. He would write it and then go to the supermarket and then get all the wrong shit and come back. No, well, he'd have someone in his ear that was telling him his lines like he does in real life and they'd be going, peanut butter. Can of baked beans, a lot of toilet really? paper. Lots of wine. Yeah. Twelfty bottles of gin. I bet if we sent him to the video shop, he'd come back with Jizz Bigelow. Oh, a male gigolo too. Two. Yeah, not even yeah. the original. Come back with a good movie, dude. Johnny Depp. Come on, Johnny Depp. I'm just not even going to let him in next time he comes over. Yeah. I never invited him. I don't even know what I'm doing. I don't know what either of us are doing. Oh, yeah. In 1988, Russell hooked up with his old mate and fellow armed robber, Ray Denning. Like, hooked up? Like, <laughs> you know, like, woo, woo. <laughs> hey, do you want to pretend like this is the tray that the electronic dinner comes on and I'll be the dinner? <laughs> I'll be the dinner, you be the electronic tray. Uh, and I'll be the prisoner. <laughs> no, that takes oh. three people. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but what's her name was probably there too. Helen. Yeah, there you go. She could play the prisoner. That would be a novelty for her, not so much for them. How was your day, darling? Well, you won't believe (gasps) my day, Sheila. I caught Russell Cox. The cunting fox. (laughs) Oh, the cunting fox. The cunting fox. Oh, honey, I'm so proud of you. Oh, and who is that again? (laughs) (laughs) The cunting fox. Oh, sorry, darling. I don't know who that is. Oh, should never have got married. Do you want to get fish and chips for dinner? Sure. You could reheat that lasagna that we didn't finish last night. No, I want I fucking just, fish and chips, I've, all right? I've just made um, a great new loaf of bread in this bread maker that we that I bought today. Oh, really? Because I just I just bought some bread from the shop. It cost me a dollar. How long did that take you to do? <laughs> I want a divorce. Actually, no, I don't. I'm just going to talk to my friend Bill that I work with. Really? He's an angel of vengeance and he will get rid of you. Oh, fuck. Is he a crow? He 
Right. Yeah, yeah. Right. Well, ah. I'm just going to pop down the shops and get some fish and chips. Yeah, fine. Do I'm want, having bread. Do you want dim sims? No. Banana fritter? I bought a dim sim maker too. Really? No. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> They kept lying that it wasn't on, and they were using sonic pressure on my head since 1997. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello, Fresh. 